Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Today's passage is John 13, verses 18 through 30. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. If you have your Bibles with you, please keep them open to John chapter 13 as we pray together. God, as we uh, open your word this morning, we know that it is uh, with a desire to hear your voice. We come to you where you reveal yourself in your word because our desire is to know you, to see your face, and to hear your voice. We pray that you would give us ears to hear this morning and eyes to see and hearts to receive the truth of this passage from John 13 and uh, Judas's betrayal of Jesus. Be with us today and give us wisdom by your Spirit to receive the truths of this passage. We ask these things in the name of your Son, our Savior. Amen. Well, this morning we resume our study of the book of John, which we began almost exactly one year ago. I think it was around, I think it was February 9th, actually, that we launched into the book of John and that we are studying now. We've seen how in the first half of this book, John has set out to help people grasp just who Jesus is, and specifically that he is God's son who came to dwell among his creation. John wants people to recognize, it's very clear to us, he wants people to recognize that Jesus is not merely a teacher or a prophet or a miracle worker, but God himself in the flesh. But now, coming to chapter 13, where we resume our study of this book this morning, we are turning a corner in this book. John's goal is to shift from demonstrating who Jesus is to explore what it is that he came to do. Jesus has gathered with his 12 disciples on what will be the night of his arrest and the eve of his crucifixion. So while John has spent 
About half of this book's total length on three years of Jesus' ministry, he will spend almost all of what remains on just a few crucial hours. And he signals that, that important shift in this book, with the chapter's opening verse in which we read, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus knows what is about to take place over the next 24 hours. And so he purposefully uses the last night that he has together with his disciples before his death to love them to the very end. For most of the disciples, this is just another Passover, the third one that they have spent with Jesus in Jerusalem. But Jesus knows what the next day will bring, and he resolves to make the most of his time with them. So beginning here in chapter 13 and throughout what is referred to as the upper room discourse of the next few chapters, Jesus will love his disciples by teaching them affirming things that he's demonstrated already in his ministry and, critically for us this morning, by revealing his heart to them in how he approaches his own death. Consequential and difficult moments in life often reveal aspects of our character that might otherwise remain unseen. Let me explain what I mean. For us, the fact is that difficult moments in life often reveal things that we try to keep hidden, the parts of our character that we don't want anyone to see. We know what it's like to lash out in anger or defensiveness when we feel mounting stress or a threat, or to act in ways that reveal the selfish, our, our selfish pride when tension rises. We know what it's like to wallow in self-pity, pridefully wanting recognition for the difficulties that we face. And most of us, Know what it's like to let fly some particularly choice language after stubbing a toe on the coffee table. We lament that our flaws are exposed when we are under stress, when we are facing difficulty. In these situations, our emotions often get the better of us and reveal the character that is underneath. But the same is not true of Jesus. Though in his humanity he experienced the full range of emotion, he never sinned in any of them. One theologian writes, He never lost his calmness, but he was not always calm. He repelled temptation with deep indignation. Hypocrisy brought about in him a flame of judgment. And as we see this morning, treachery shook him to the center of his being. Though he is divine, he is also fully human, and, the full, and he is full of the full range of emotion that fill each of us. But unlike us, when pressure rises, he is not scrambling to keep his true character hidden. Instead, as we see here in John 13, he uses moments like this one, the desertion and abandonment of a friend to uncover his true character. While pressure reveals what we try to keep hidden, Jesus employs it to reveal his heart. We see that even in the way that Jesus prepares for what is about to happen with Judas. When we stepped away from the book of John in November, Jesus had just stunned his 12 close friends by washing their feet. He put on the uniform of a servant, the lowest servant in the house, and demeaned himself by doing for them what they ought to have done for him. 
And at some point, as he was washing their feet, he came to Judas, and he washed the feet of the man who would shortly denounce and double-cross him. It's not as though he didn't know what Judas was thinking. After, after uh, telling them that his humble love, which they've seen in his foot washing, his humble love is the example for them to follow in their lives. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you who do them, but I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Jesus knows, he knows exactly what's about to happen with Judas. And he's telling them, he's telling the other 11, so that they will look back on this moment and know him more deeply and believe in him more truly. There's a lot that might be said about Judas in this scene about why he would do the things that he does, or about Satan's influence in his life. But the most important things to see here, and what we will focus on this morning, are what Jesus chooses to focus on and reveal. Rather than scrambling to keep his true character under wraps, Jesus will leverage this difficult moment to reveal who he really is. Leading up to this passage, we see signs of this, that this is what's happening. Jesus talks repeatedly about what they will one day understand and what they will one day know, that he is not merely a prophet who relays God's word to them, or merely a priest who mediates a relationship between them and God, or that he is merely a king who rules over God's kingdom, but that he is the divine prophet, priest, and king who will in himself bring them into everlasting life and fellowship with God. In some translations, that notion is clearer for us here. In the ESV that I'm reading this morning, and I'm sure many of you are reading as well, the passage reads that Jesus does these things and says these things, so that you may believe that I am he, in verse 19. But the word he is not actually there in the Greek of this passage, and so some translations leave that out. And Jesus says literally that he says these things and does these things, that you may believe that I am. Jesus wants them to know that he is I am, which is the name that God gave for himself in Exodus 3. He is I am, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping creator who, by his power and mercy, calls people to relationship with himself and who, in love, will give his life for theirs to save them from his own holy wrath and judgment. In the events that are about to unfold, that will be on display in a unique way. And that is the objective of this section of the Upper Room Discourse that we're looking at this morning. This is how we ought to approach the passage before us. It is not only a significant milestone in the narrative, a step closer to the climax of the story that we're reading. It certainly is that. Judas will shortly betray Jesus to his enemies, hastening his arrest and execution. But what we see here does serve an important narrative purpose. It advances the story to get to the point of what this has all been about, but that is not the only reason that this scene is recorded for us. If we read these lines and assume that John included them simply so that we would know how it came about that Jesus was hung on a cross, we miss 
that Jesus is using this moment to share his heart, to shine a light on the endlessness of his compassion and love for the disciples and for all of us. That is immediately visible, I think, in verse 21, that Jesus is bearing his heart when we read that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. It's noteworthy, I think, that Jesus does not say that, but John records it. Because evidently there's something about Jesus, maybe in his expression or his body language or his tone of voice, that makes it clear, that the, makes it clear to the disciples that something was troubling him. They had spent enough time with him at this point to know that something was off. In the same way that you can read your close friends or family members without them needing to say that there's something wrong. They can tell that Jesus is unsettled, that there is something deeply wrong. Two other times in the book of John, we read that Jesus was troubled. So they've seen this before. In chapter 11, after Jesus' close friend Lazarus has died, and he sees the sadness of Lazarus' mourning family, he was troubled. Second, in chapter 12, after Jesus has told his disciples that he is like a grain of wheat, which will fall to the earth and die so that others may have life. He was troubled. So as he grieves the pain that death causes and anticipates his own terrible suffering, Jesus is troubled. From each of these occurrences of this word in this book, we can infer that this is no mild displeasure. He is not just having an off day. The things that trouble Jesus are counter to his whole existence and stoke his righteous anger. I think that point is made clearer by looking at one other place in the book of John where this word comes up. Back in chapter 5, when Jesus was talking with a paralyzed beggar, the man explains to Jesus that he's been hoping for a chance at healing from a common superstition of the time. He and the other people that were With him believed that when the water in a nearby pool was stirred up, it would heal the first person who jumped in. It was a superstition that probably developed because the agitation of the water in this pool was both significant and mystifying. Whether it was a geyser or some other geological feature is not known, but it seems clear that it was not just a subtle bubbling of the water. The word that the man uses to explain to Jesus about the stirring of the water is actually the same word that's used here, to describe Jesus. Both are troubled. This is no light affliction. There is a stirring in Jesus' spirit that the disciples can see on his face and hear in his voice. Clearly, Jesus is like us. He is not immune to sadness nor to anger. He is well acquainted with grief as each of us are. Though he lived a perfect life free of sin, we would be wrong to assume that he therefore also lived a life that was free of sorrow and grief. The 19th century theologian B.B. Warfield wrote that despite the complexity of understanding the incarnation and the dual nature of Christ, it belongs to the truth of our Lord's humanity that he was subject to all sinless human emotions. This is a comfort, both to Christians who followed Christ then and now. Unlike the gods of pagan antiquity, our Savior and our God is not out of touch or removed from our lives. He knows our strife because he has felt it firsthand. 
This is what Jesus first reveals about himself in this scene, that he walks with us through grief. I remember when I was in high school and I was on the track team, we had a bunch of coaches who led various parts of our practices. Some coaches would tell us what we were going to do that day and they would send us off to do it. Or in one case, we had a coach who would actually ride along beside us in a golf cart to give us feedback. The little bullhorn, he was right there with us. But a couple of coaches would actually come and run with us. And that made a huge difference to me. Knowing that our coach was submitting himself to the same thing that we were facing somehow made it easier for me to keep going. And when we had a particularly difficult workout to get through, it was encouraging to see some of our coaches out there gutting it out with us. So it is with Christ. In our grief, we can know that we have an advocate who knows what it is to be troubled in spirit. He is not far off. He has run this route before and he knows it well. He knows what it means to suffer and to feel the sting of betrayal and the loss of one of his closest friends. That is the root of his sorrow here in chapter 13, as he tells his disciples in verses 18 and 21. His friend is about to betray him. That description of Judas may not square with how you typically think about Judas. After all, he is one of history's greatest villains. So is it right to describe him as a friend of Jesus. I think it's important for us to keep in mind that this night has come after three years spent together. Judas has been there with Jesus at every step. He's been part of the camaraderie that has surely developed among the 12 disciples. Though Jesus knew his heart and what he would one day become, the other disciples had no suspicion of him whatsoever. We see that here in this passage, with their utter cluelessness about what is happening between Jesus and Judas. Even though Jesus says aloud, so that everyone can hear it, that the one who will betray him is the one that he gives a morsel of bread to, and then he does, and they're still confused when Jesus gives him that bread, and Judas walks out of the room. The idea that Judas would betray Jesus, that he would turn against Jesus, is so impossible to them that they don't even get it when it's happening right in front of their faces. Now, what should we make of that? It's a pretty interesting thing to think about, the fact that they watched all this happen and still had no clue, and they thought, well, Jesus has been sent, uh, Judas has been sent on an errand. What should we make of that? Well, first, that the disciples were simply not yet able to comprehend what was happening. As Jesus said in verse 19, they would, it, would, it would only be by looking back at these things that they would understand and come to know just who Jesus was and what he would accomplish. Second, they had utter confidence in Jesus. John notes that they were reclining at the table, react, relaxing and enjoying the holiday. It couldn't be a further contrast with Jesus, who is visibly troubled at this point. But why should they worry? Their leader, they've seen for themselves, can calm storms. He can cast out demons. He can even raise the dead. So who cares if someone is going to try to stop him? They can't see any reason to fear at this point, after all the things that they've seen. And thirdly, they genuinely love and trust Judas as a member of the team. And though Judas is a villain, 
and his treachery is truly wicked. He was formed by Jesus' own hands as an image bearer of God's eternal glory. So we would be wrong to say that Jesus has no affection for Judas, and if we only see him as the traitor that he became, we do not rightly understand how bitter his betrayal was to Jesus and the other eleven. Jesus hints at this with his comment in verse 18. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. He's quoting from Psalm 41, actually. And in doing so, he illustrates that his relationship with Judas is complicated. The psalm discusses a time when King David was also betrayed by one who he had shared meals with, who he had trusted and confided in. Original readers of this psalm, Psalm 41, would have understood that David shared meals with this person and understood him to be more than simply an acquaintance. David had welcomed him as if he were a member of his own family. This line conveys the drastic change that has taken place from a friend who is closer than a brother to an enemy who is uniquely positioned, uniquely able to strike at David's heart because of their history. This isn't a perfect parallel to Jesus and Judas. After all, Jesus has known from the start what was in Judas's heart. He said way back in chapter 6 that he knew who did not believe, that he knew that he would be betrayed, and that he knew who would do it. So he isn't surprised in the same way that David was. He is not dismayed by Judas's betrayal. That's not the point of quoting from Psalm 41. He quotes from Psalm 41 because he is feeling the same pain that David felt. He's conveying the fact that this strikes at his heart, that one who is as close as a brother has become an enemy. Jesus knows the pain of betrayal, because as this passage helps us see, he came to be betrayed in order to set right what had been corrupted. Jesus uses this moment to reveal that he came not only to redeem, but also to restore what was lost in the fall. There's an important distinction that we need to make here. We often and rightly talk about and celebrate the redemptive work of Christ, who purchased us out of slavery to sin by his own blood. That is what redemption means, that he brings us out of the pit of sin and judgment by forgiving and atoning for our sin. But his saving work goes further than that. His grace is greater than that because he also restores what was lost. He mends what was broken. It's the difference between buying a historic house so that it is not torn down and going to the additional uh, expense and trouble of actually fixing it up and returning it to its former glory. It is no insignificant thing to say that the salvation of Christ is not merely forgiveness, but that it is also restoration. His work to save his people, to save us, is not only to spare us God's wrath, but also to set right what was lost and to mend what was broken. This passage helps us to recognize that in a subtle but meaningful way that Jesus is determined to finish this work, even if doing so will come at tremendous personal cost. Early on in Jesus' ministry, 
people were scheming about his death. As early as chapter 5 of John's gospel, we read that the priests and scribes were seeking all the more to kill him. There was no shortage of hostility toward Jesus. I've always been intrigued by the fact that they didn't actually move on that ambition until Judas shows up to collect a reward. It was not as though these people who hated Jesus had no opportunity during the years of Jesus' public ministry. Crowds were often able to find Jesus, and they were often gathered around him, so he was easy to find a lot of the time, and he often made no secret of his whereabouts. So if they wanted to find him, they could have easily done so. But John's gospel has specified that until this night, until this moment, Jesus' hour had not yet come. The priests are not in control. The scribes are not in control. Even the Romans are not in control. No one takes Jesus' life from him, we read in chapter uh, chapter 10. He alone has the authority to lay it down and even to take it up again. Nothing has happened or will happen apart from what Jesus has specifically ordained to take place. He determined the day and the hour. And evidently, he also ordained that it would happen by the deliberate and decisive betrayal of one of his closest followers. Why would he plan this? What point is he making by giving up his life in this way that would compound the emotional toll that is involved? I think the answer comes to us in considering that Judas ought to have been a faithful disciple. He had more compelling reasons than most. He had the unique privilege of traveling with Jesus and being part of the close-knit entourage that saw him up close and got to know him best and spent every day and night with him for almost three years. He had an unparalleled opportunity to understand just who Jesus was and that in him was the fullness of the glory of God. The English Puritan Thomas Goodwin once wrote that Judas heard every single one of Jesus' sermons, and his point is that no Christian should think that we are immune to the schemes of the devil or the sinful tendencies of our own hearts simply because we attend church or live what we might consider to be a Christian life. Judas was closer than any of us ever will be in this lifetime to Jesus, yet he rejected him for a few pieces of silver." When he was tempted, he did not cling to Christ, even though he had seen him firsthand. Instead, he listened to the devilish lies, and in the end, he believed that there was something better out there. And in this way, Judas fell to the same temptation that Adam and Eve had in Genesis 3. They, too, had every reason to remain faithful to God. They lived in his presence in paradise. They saw him face to face. They heard his word with their own ears, and they had experienced his provision every day. They got an unparalleled opportunity to see and understand the fullness of the glory of God and to behold it firsthand. But when a serpent came whispering lies about the goodness of God, they did not cling to what they knew to be true and what they had seen with their own eyes. Instead, they let the serpent keep whispering. They didn't condemn the lies or the liar. They listened, and they let him keep lying, telling them that there was something better than what they had, and they fell. 
I think part of the reason that the devil is mentioned twice in this chapter is so that we will make this connection. Adam, Eve, and Judas all had compelling reasons to remain faithful, but all failed to cling to the truth when the devil whispered in their ears. Okay, so what point is Jesus making in all of this? I think it is this. In Judas, Christ has willed to mend what was broken by the same mechanism that it was lost in the first place. He is not merely redeeming. He is restoring. The devil's schemes will be unraveled. Jesus will have ultimate victory and will will restore once and for all what was lost in the Garden of Eden. It was Adam and Eve's rejection of God that cast all of creation into the spiral of sin and the shadow of God's judgment. And now it will be Judas's rejection of God's Son that he will use to bring about the restoration of everything that was lost in Adam. It is his very nature to restore what was lost, to set right what has been damaged, and to cure what is corrupted for those who cling to him in faith. This is who he is. And John 13 helps us see it more clearly. Lastly, we see that Jesus does not wield his authority for his own self-interest. One thing that John clearly wants everyone reading this book to realize is that Jesus' authority is utterly unchallenged. Whether he is commanding disciples to follow him, the blind to see, the lame to walk, or even the dead to rise, there is no one and nothing that does not yield to him and his word of command. There is no real threat to Jesus' authority, so even when he is betrayed, arrested, tortured, and executed, it it will all be because Jesus allows such evil to afflict him. So when he tells his disciples in verse 21, truly, truly, I say to you, one one of you will betray me, it is not because he is panicking. Instead, if we keep everything else we've seen in the book of John in mind, we will recognize that even this will happen according to his will. He's not a victim, an unwilling victim but the one who from eternity past planned for this moment in his own crucifixion. We see that in the way that Jesus exercises his authority in this passage. After Jesus passes the morsel of bread to Judas, we read that Satan entered into him, that is to say, into Judas. Up to this point, only the devil has been mentioned. It's a general term describing the character and attributes of demonic forces, But here in verse 27, John says that Satan entered into Judas. It's the only time in the whole book that his name is used, as if this particular assignment is too important to be delegated to a lower or lesser demon. Satan himself, the chief agent of evil and rebellion against God, has gripped Judas's heart for his own evil purposes. And as Pastor Eric pointed out to me earlier this week, the words from Jesus that follow... Satan's arrival on the scene are directed as much at Satan himself as they are at Judas. Jesus says to them both, what you are going to do, do quickly. Jesus commands even Satan himself to do as he is instructed. This is no clash of the titans, 
as though Satan could actually stand against Jesus. Even though Satan thinks that he is about to score an overwhelming victory, he is actually on a very short leash and subject to the plans and purposes of God. Jesus' authority is absolute. This This passage displays that in a powerful way, yet he wields it to bring about his own suffering for my good and yours. It reminds me of the story of Jonas Salk, who invented the polio vaccine in 1955. Up to that point in time, polio had devastated countless lives in countries all around the world. In 1952 alone, there were over 21,000 children left paralyzed by polio in the United States alone. So when he developed a successful vaccine, he knew that he had something with the potential to change the world and to make him incredibly wealthy. But rather than patent his vaccine, he gave it away in order to speed up the distribution around the world. He never sought any monetary gain from his groundbreaking work. He saved countless lives and an incalculable amount of suffering. In one of the most selfless acts that was ever carried out, Jonas Salk chose to forego an incredible fortune to help people in desperate need. And as amazing as that was, It was only an echo of the selflessness of Christ to forego his own self-interest by not showing, or by, by not only by showing us grace, but also by taking upon himself the curse that ought to have been ours. Rather than using his authority to deflect threats, he uses it to orchestrate a set of events that will culminate in his own torture and execution and the wrath of his father being poured out on him for our guilt. This scene from John 13 is a valuable one for us. Even though sometimes we read it and we think, well, this is just a stepping stone. It gets us, okay, so Judas had to do, okay, right now we're closer to the cross. But it's valuable for us, and it's valuable for us to consider it as we begin the season of Lent together. The days that lead up to Good Friday and Easter have been set apart throughout much of Christian history as a time to reflect on the grave nature of our sin and the selfless champion of mercy who took the weight of that sin upon himself. It is a unique season in which Christians, as 1 Peter 1 puts it, prepare your minds for action. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it is a time to reflect on the willingness of Christ to forego his own self-interest, to be bitterly betrayed in order to carry out his plan of redemption and restoration. One way we do that is by using tools like the Lent devotional, which we're using here at Westgate this year and is available to all of you. It is a way that we can adjust our daily rhythms to help us keep the cross in, in view as Good Friday nears. And another is to consider how Jesus himself chose to approach the cross, how, how he walked through the first Lent. Here in John 13, we see how he leveraged even the moment of Judas's desertion and betrayal to reveal his heart and the hope of the gospel. He knows our grief because he has walked through it himself. He aims to redeem us from the shame of guilt and sin to the glory that we were intended to bear. And he will do this by wielding his authority, not for his rescue from danger, but ours. He chose to reveal these things 
in and through the pain of Judas's betrayal so that we would see that in him there is a greater hope and a deeper love than might be found anywhere else. Let's pray together. Lord, as we reflect on and consider this passage this morning, let us not miss the display of your compassion and your love and your glory that is revealed in these tragic events. Let us trust in your sovereign will, in your willingness to feel the sting of betrayal, and in your refusal to spare yourself this pain for our sake and the restoration of your creation. Help us to trust in you, to cling to you, and to believe that you are true God, eternal glory, and our Savior. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.